one. Welcome to the High Reliability Podcast, presented by Goslin Martin Associates. The High Reliability Podcast is focused solely on the healthcare facility management profession and the professionals who work in it. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Jared Shapiro, System Senior Director, Environmental Health and Safety for the Montefiore Health System, which has been at the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak in New York City. As of May 9th, the system reported that more than 5,000 COVID-19 patients have been released from Montefiore, a number that thankfully continues to increase. So that's great news. Jared has been with Montefiore for almost five years, and he has about 20 years of healthcare-specific experience, and he provides environmental health and safety oversight for 15 hospitals, a research-intensive medical school, Albert Einstein, and 450 off-site locations. Jared's responsible for the environment of care, radiation safety, laser safety, biological and chemical safety, fire and life safety, emergency management, laboratory safety, construction safety, emerging infectious diseases, pre-hospital care, and occupational health and ergonomics. Safe to say that Jared has been a busy person over these last two months. Jared, thanks for joining me today. Peter, thank you so much for having me. I, uh, I appreciate it. I know that you've got a lot going on. You've had a lot going on. Jared, inc- incidentally, um, if you are on LinkedIn, he's a really good follow on LinkedIn. He's provided a lot of information over the course of the last couple of months relative to the, to the goings on um, within his system. And it's, it's good to track from, uh, from a ways away. So I, I appreciate that, Jared. And again, if you're on LinkedIn, Jared Shapiro on LinkedIn is a good follow. How are you doing? <laughs> Peter, we're actually doing uh, great. It, it's been a, uh, a long haul for us uh, within the health system. We are, as you said, in the epicenter of the COVID response in, in New York. And um, we started uh, opening up our command structure and all that comes with it uh, about February 3rd. And up until today, uh, our command center is still open and running. Uh, we've gone through uh, the peak of the and the hardest points of, I think, this response that we've seen so far, and we've made it uh, through very well, uh, thanks to everybody uh, within the health system, including all frontline healthcare workers, our support staff, and our community that supports Montefiore with donations and, and words and, and encouragement of support. Um, so we are now on the downtrend. As you mentioned uh, the other day, we discharged our 5,000 pa- patient, uh, and that was just at one facility. So our other facilities throughout the health system are also discharging at a high rate as well. And uh, we're very proud to be doing that. We're very proud to be um, the frontline leaders in the community, and we're proud to be providing the excellent care that we always have to uh, the communities most in need specifically in the Bronx. You, um, interesting, you said that you set your command center up on February 3rd, which is, which is, I, I don't want to say, which is well before kind of when the critical mass was hit, almost a month before critical mass was hit, right? What were you seeing or, or why did you, I don't want to say set it up so early because we know what's happened, but February 3rd is relatively early compared to others. What triggered that um, and what information were you seeing and or getting? Yeah. So the reason why we activated so early and just so you have a kind of a 
understanding of our emergency management structure is we have four levels of activation. Our level one, which is just a notification level that something is happening. So an impending tornado or storm, as an example, up to a level four, which takes the entire health system to respond, which is where we are now. Uh, but we started at that Hicks activation level one early on because we wanted to ensure that we are getting ready to, and preparing for what we were seeing in Japan, China, Italy, and, and everywhere else overseas. We knew it was coming. We can see what was happening. We can see how the virus was spreading. Um, it didn't yet make the media as it does today, but um, with the guidance of our hospital epidemiologists, myself and our senior leaders, we felt it would be prudent to activate at that Hicks level one and start um, sourcing for the supplies that we thought we might need at the time. And then soon thereafter, not too far, uh, the, the hospital in New Rochelle, which is where patient kind of zero, as they would say, came from, uh, in that community showed up at, at that New Rochelle hospital. And, and at that time, we were already poised and ready to respond to what we thought was going to be the pandemic that we planned for. And then, as we all know, uh, the pandemic got much, much larger than I think that most could, could envision. <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement. I, you know, it's funny. I remember, you know, thinking back to that, and then I think when Cuomo initially quarantined the new Rochelle area or they put those stringent mes uh, measures in place. I remember thinking and talking at the time, I was like, wow, that's really, um, it seemed to me to be extreme, but in retrospect, looking back on it, it's amazing how far it's gone since that point. And that was just really the, when was that, Jared? That was early February for new Rochelle? That was uh, like mid-February, I believe. Seems like long ago now, doesn't it? Right, it really does. <laughs> Have you been, um, you know, from a from a work schedule perspective for both you and and you know the hospital employees? What's that pace been like for you? From the moment that we started, uh, we've been working literally twenty four seven, and and people say like, ha ha ha, how can you do that? But we're doing it. And the command centers at the campuses are open. The, uh, the command center at the system level is open. And we've been nonstop from day one uh, up until continuing today to ensure the health and safety of every single one of our staff, as well as ensuring that the patients are treated with the highest level of care that, that's possible at all of our campuses. And then working with our planning partners and our response partners in the offices of emergency management, the health departments, the Greater New York Hospital Association, uh, the governor's office, et cetera, uh, to continue that response and to continue that preparedness. And then, you know, now as we see uh, and look forward to the future, what that kind of new normal, and I say that in quotes, might look like, and how do we continue operations moving forward with all of our offsites, the ambulatory care centers, the business offices, opening um, elective surgeries back up, inviting people back to our emergency departments that they would normally come for the critical care that they need. And that's the programs and the policies that we're shifting to now, but the command center remains open, not only to continue to respond to and recover from this, but 
possibly uh, maybe there's a second or third wave that's coming in the future. But as we ramp down uh, from the response and try to recover, the command center is working on guidance documents for that new normal. We're working on items about cleanliness and reopening and and fixing and touching up some of those areas that we haven't been able to in the past uh, because we've always had such a high census that are in our hospitals pre-COVID. So now it gives us a, an opportunity um, as we discharge these folks and we don't have a high census coming in because most people are getting treated either via telemedicine or other means, but they're not coming through the hospital, through the ER traditionally. And I think we're seeing that nationwide, not just here. Um, so it gives us a bit of an opportunity to really touch up those areas, to plan for the future, to understand what Montefiore might look like in the next couple of years, create new um, ICU level care spaces and, and all the components and things that might come with it. That's great. Great answer. You know, you talked about um, a couple of things in there, and I think you're you're correct. You know, we we deal in healthcare recruiting and education, and um, speaking with healthcare directors across the country, I think you're right um, that censuses are way down, and in areas of the country where they're unaffected, they're just kind of waiting, you know, and 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 laying people off and furloughing people. So it's it is across the country. But the other thing when we talk to healthcare facility directors that they ask us about, and it's what I want to ask you about, because you mentioned it right at the very beginning of of um, your answer there. You talked about your employees and how you've been going 24-7. One of the questions that facility directors have asked us, if we know, you know, relative to employees, what was it like for them? And and were they afraid? And, and how did you lead them? And what were some of the what were some of the issues in the employees' minds, especially very early on, that concerned them relative to COVID-19 when you didn't have a full body of information yet? It's a great question. So let me just start by saying that I think that it wasn't just the frontline employees that were scared and nervous. It was all of us. This is very new and different in terms of scope of this pandemic. Um, we deal with infectious diseases every day in healthcare. Our staff are trained to wear personal protective equipment, right? We have a flu uh, epidemic, for lack of a better term, every fall, and we get through that. And then we treat our normal patients wearing PPE, like our tuberculosis patients or our C. diff patients or our MRSA patients. And, and we're comfortable on a normal day outside of COVID to don and doff our PPE. But this is different. This was a global pandemic where we saw the infectious rates very high, the death rates very high, and the significant amount of media attention obviously uh, increases that that angst and anxiety, that fear. Um, so I think that almost everybody had had a, a fear of going into this. What we did in in the beginning. Early, early on, before we even had our first patient that came to any one of our hospitals was we re-educated all of our staff on proper donning and doffing and use of PPE. So that was the first thing. We also talked to our staff about 
what their specific role and responsibility might be, whether it's environmental services, engineering, transport, any of the support staff that interact either with patients or support the care of those patients, including our security staff. Everybody needed to know that we're behind them. We support them. Any questions that they had, uh, any concerns that they had, there was an easy way to escalate those that came up from the local level to the local command centers up to the system command center, and that information was disseminated and passed down. We put on in-person trainings, video trainings that are posted onto our intranet site. We did uh, daily, weekly podcasts, daily, weekly webinars to ensure that every single one of our employees at every single level um, got any questions or concerns answered. Um, And I think we did a pretty good job at doing that. The other thing that we did was we ensured that all of the responsible managers were available all shifts. So if there was an issue that came up and something needed to be responded to, a question that needed to be answered, somebody was unsure of something during the response, they could stop, ask, get that question answered immediately and continue on that role or responsibility. There were numerous methods uh, set up, different algorithms of the way that we uh, would typically clean a room, the way that we would have our visitation, the way that our engineering staff would go into a room to do preventive maintenance or, or biomed uh, to go in and test or swap out a piece of medical equipment. Every single aspect that supports hospital care, that supports patient care, had to have a good look, evaluation, and a new way of moving forward during this response and still happens today during the recovery aspect and our return to, as we talked about before, normal. You know, it's amazing. Nothing in healthcare happens quickly just by, by its nature, you know, pre-COVID-19. Yet as I listen to you, thinking of everything that had to be implemented and just the speed with which you had to, in the organization, needed to, you know, make decisions, determine a new process, educate, and then actually have it implemented in the field by employees is, it's a massive undertaking that I don't, anybody in healthcare would understand it, but, you know, outside of healthcare, everything that goes into it. How did you, how did you accomplish that in a timely fashion? Because, you know, as you're doing all this, your clock is ticking and you're seeing mortality rates rise. So it's not like you had a luxury of time with this. Yeah, business was not as usual. Um, And in the role of the command structure, we're able to, I'm not going to say bypass, because bypass isn't a good word, but a lot of the typical things that might uh, hold up or slow down processes didn't occur during this response because it goes up, an issue would go to the command center, it would be answered immediately, a response would come right back, and action would be taken. The other thing is that, you know, there was guidance. We followed the guidance, whether it's from the CDC or or FDA or OSHA uh, or the state health department, the city health department. Uh, As that guidance got updated, we had to ensure that we were following those. So so it's a full-time job just to understand and digest the guidance, the ever-changing guidance, and kind of like 
regurgitate that information back to every single employee. So as those occurred and as the guidance changed, so did we at Montefiore, whether it was around uh, the way that we rest a room uh, based on the air exchange rates. That was one of the first things that we did. And this is a great example as a facilities discussion is how long do we rest a room? And utilizing the CDC guidance based on the calculations that we've always had in our risk assessment of the number of air exchange rates uh, per specific rooms or areas, we were able to rapidly calculate those room rest times and, and submit that out to all of our sites. So every single person knew that if a COVID positive patient was in a particular room or area that had an aerosolized generating procedure, that room would need to be arrested for X amount of time uh, based on the calculations and the air exchange rates. And for those rooms and areas that we didn't particularly know because they weren't on our risk assessment, then, then a field air exchange rate and calculation was done, and that was submitted into our guidance document. Wow. Lots that went into it. One of the, um, one of your, uh, social or your LinkedIn post talked a little bit about the conversion of your conference space, which was known as the Grand Hall, to an inpatient treatment area when the first COVID-19 patients started to arrive. Can you talk a little bit about that, that process and, and the challenge and what you did? Sure. Peter, in, in pandemic planning in the past, we've always had this assumption that we were going to plan for a 20% surge in patients. Right, that's always the guidance that we've always kind of like put on hospitals um, when it came to response. Uh, and what happened was the in New York, the governor ordered hospitals to create double capacity, so two hundred percent, not twenty percent, as we've always planned for and had in our pandemic planning documents. Two hundred percent—that's a huge number. Yeah. So what we had to do was find these non-traditional spaces um, that in our in our plan maybe was used for something else. So the grand hall that you talked about, this is our largest uh, conference room space. Um, and what we did was we piped in medical air, we built head walls, we put in electric, emergency power, um, suction, rooms, curtains. It was a huge undertaking to convert this huge auditorium space. It's it's as big as a conference hall in like a hotel that you might go to a conference in. And this was done over a weekend. Wow. And it's very hard to understand because in the past, if we said we need to convert this space into something else and we would have to get architectural drawings and then uh, approvals right. and go to get certificates of need and, and get all these things done and all the bureaucracy and then start to build well, our architects in-house designed it. We contracted a company, including our in-house engineering uh, folks, and we built it over a weekend. The seats came out, the carpets came out, uh, the ceilings uh, in some areas were dismantled, new ceilings were put up, the head walls were built, the med gas was, was run, the electric was put in, the curtains were hung with wire, and the room was built, including hand wash stations uh, at, at, in the rooms. This was unheard of in the past. That's amazing. 
Yeah, it was an amazing feat, amazing feat. And and then I also should mention that this room was also made negative pressure. So the entire grand hall was a negative pressure environment. Wow. I'm just thinking, you know, I'm just thinking two examples. When somebody wants to convert uh, an office into a storage room or it take anything, you know, take any simple example. It might be one 200 square foot space that goes through an entire process that takes weeks or months on end. And you did this in a weekend. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was remarkable. It really was. How and many, this, um, this was just one example at one hospital, but the same concept occurred at all of our hospitals because we had no choice, but to create that, that double capacity so that grand hall was just one example. We converted PT gyms into the same thing at, at other campuses, um, but but it was it was something that we may never see in the future. And and I just want to say that the way that these are set up, the patients have all been discharged, but they remain ready to go um, in the same condition, clean and ready to go for a possible second or third wave. You did all that work. You don't want it to go for naught. Hopefully it does. Um, but you don't know. how many, do you know how many patients could be, could be seen in the grand hall at one time? And did, did you max it out? Yeah. In grand hall, uh, in that area, we were able to see 30 patients in just grand hall. And then surrounding grand hall, we have the, what we call the Tishman learning center. And those are various conference rooms. Uh, we call them, it's TLC 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And those were also converted into other areas. So one section had 16 patients. Another section had 11 patients. So um, overall, in that entire conference space, there was enough to, to fit uh, just over 50 patients. Uh, you... Um what was it like for you? Um, so, you, you, when you in in your Bronx um, in your Bronx location, w- do you remember that moment when the surge hit you? Like, was there a moment in time when you're like, "Holy mackerel, this is unbelievable"? Where you were, you it kind of hit you that, "Oh, we're in this," or was it more of a gradual ramp up for you? It was definitely the gradual ramp up. We see the patient numbers, the counts rising the amount of patients in the emergency departments. We set up tents outside every emergency department so we can triage and rapidly treat um, those less uh, acute COVID patients and bring into the emergency department the ones that we thought needed to be intubated and put on ventilators immediately. And this happened at at all of our campuses system-wide. But there were times where we were seeing, you know, hundreds of patients in our emergency department and they were being intubated, put on ventilators, and then needing needing ICU level care. Uh, so as we saw this occurring, and our buildings or our towers starting to get full, and then going from one tower to the next tower to the next tower, um, it was it was a, a climb. It was basically a steep climb up a mountain, and you can see it in our data. And then till we hit the peak, and now it's this kind of gradual slow decline as we start discharging these patients are you still is, is i think you mentioned this still predominantly um covid19 patients in the hospitals in your hospitals yes the vast majority of our patients in all of our hospitals are, are covid positive patients 
What's it? What's the type? What's the cent? Or you know, if you don't have a number, just percentage wise, what it, it what is it down to at this point? Yeah. So the census at the hospitals, I think uh, I would be safe to say that it's our normal census now. The, the patients in the hospital now are less than the patient census that we've ever seen in the last twenty five years. Wow. So people aren't necessarily coming to the hospitals. Uh, for that regular care. And, and obviously, uh, elective surgery and all surgeries, except for critical surgeries, have been canceled. So so those non-acute surgeries uh, were canceled by the governor's orders. So those patients who would normally come in, uh, maybe stay a day or two uh, and be discharged, they're, they're not here. Relative to, as you mentioned, the everybody is aware of the story across the country, across the world. You've lived it. What is something that sticks out to you that we might not get from TV or reporting about the epidemic? About the epidemic, and I'm asking that in light of just anything that hits you, whether it's um, from a patient perspective, an employee. What's something that we might not know about COVID nineteen watching on TV, but yet you know because you've lived it? I think that from my perspective, um, there is a lot. Uh, that you see on TV about how thankful people are for our frontline staff, our nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists and all those folks, and rightfully so, our heroes are our frontline staff. I think what most people out there in not working in healthcare don't understand is the amount of individuals who support that care, the facilities folks those who are touching the HVAC systems, the biomedical engineering technicians, the security staff, the transporters, the food service workers who are cooking patients for our staff, for our patients, uh, even up to the folks who are our valets who are parking the cars, every single person, our procurement teams, our warehouse teams, those who are delivering the PPE from the warehouse to the to the uh, hospital so our our staff are safe treating these patients. There are so many individuals that we're so thankful for, the amazing work that everybody's done. And, and they've all, every single one of them, has risen to an occasion that we never thought would happen. We would never dream that something like this would have occurred. But every single person stepped up, did an amazing job, uh, and and really change the lives of so many patients and the entire community that Montefiore serves. Oh, great answer. Great answer. You had mentioned um, back a little bit, Jared, about the new, uh, a new normal. Um, what do you think as we emerge from this, and maybe there is a second surge, we don't know, but just do you, any ideas what a new normal may look like relative to, you know, hospitals and Healthcare and you know your line of your line of work in environmental health and safety slash facilities. Yeah, so I'm going to say a couple things about the new normal. I think that the new normal for the foreseeable future will be a lot of emphasis on telemedicine from an outpatient perspective. I think I think that uh, the patients who used to come in um, every day to visit with their primary care docs might be might be willing to do that from their couch. Obviously, there are specific types of patients who need to be seen in an 
ambulatory setting inside the the facility. So from our dental clinics, our OBGYN clinics, um, uh, and those kind of folks, right? Our primary care, our primary care offices, those need to take those patients in. So in that regard, specific engineering and cleaning protocols need to be put in place for all those. Our infusion centers for our cancer patients. Um, those are specific areas where I think that we have no choice but to obviously open up and, and, and do a phenomenal job uh, treating those patients. And the other ones might be able to be treated via telemedicine. I think it's going to take some time for people to be comfortable coming in and having those elective surgeries. I think people are nervous if they come to a hospital that they're going to they're going to catch COVID. But what they'll see when they enter our hospitals is that the emphasis around personal protection where everybody's wearing masks, the facility cleanliness um, where we're not only cleaning as we used to, but every single high touch area, uh, every hallway, every elevator, every faucet cabinet um, is all getting cleaned on a very, very regular basis. Uh, and And I'll also add that the areas in the hospitals where we might not have had uh, HEPA filtration in our HVAC system will now have HEPA filtration or UV or both. Those critical care areas that always had it, our children's hospitals, our emergency departments, um, our oncology areas, our bone marrow transplant, tran- our regular transplant floors that always had HEPA filtration and UV, now we're adding that to our, our main hallway HVAC systems, our regular med surge systems. And the future also is more negative pressure rooms and areas, more areas to treat critical patients in an ICU type setting. And then the last thing I'll add about the new normal is the ability to visualize the monitoring equipment for our patients from outside the room. So not just telemetry from a central telemetry point, but how can we visualize the IV um, pumps or the ventilator uh, machines from outside the patient room? Because every time we enter and exit, a patient's room, that's another set of personal protective equipment that we need to don and doff. Well, very detailed. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. Um, lots to lots to learn. Final question. And, and today, again, I'm joined by Jared Shapiro, System Senior Director of Environmental Health and Safety for the Montefiore Health System uh, in New York City. How would you describe um, the state of your system now? Great question. So first, let me just say that I think that people understand how hard everybody worked. I think that the system, the people has never been closer and more supportive of each other. Not to say that we weren't supportive of each other before. Not to say that we didn't think that the job that every single employee was doing wasn't important. But There's always a time after a crisis, during a crisis, after a crisis, and we can recall the same thing happening after 9-11 where people were real heroes. And our people have always been heroes. We've always treated patients. We've always um, ensured that the community that we're in, that we serve, is treated with the greatest level of care. But, But now 
we're closer. Now everybody is seen uh, in that same light that, that, frankly, that I've always seen our staff in as, as heroes, the stuff that they do every day. So I think that that's something to be proud of as a system that we're so much closer aligned. And then as we move forward to the future of Monofear, the future of healthcare, we're more closer aligned to try to understand what that might be, um, how we're going to perform these future surgeries, how we're going to segregate our COVID positive from our COVID negative, what we're going to do to our business offices, our ambulatory care sites. And I think everybody is on, is on board. And it's not just that people are worried about themselves and saying, like, what have you done to protect me? It's really what are we doing to protect all of us? And, and it's a, that's a different viewpoint than I think that we've had in the past. From an environmental health and safety point of view, my job has always been ensuring the health and safety of every single person that walks into any one of our campuses. And now we take a broader approach. It's not just the health and safety of the people and the environment, but it's health, safety, cleanliness, uh, you know, HVAC systems, every single component that typically fell on a facilities director, a security director, a food and nutrition director, from my standpoint, now we're closer aligned. Now we're working together, not that we didn't work close before, but now we're in step to ensure that every single thing, that every single one of our folks are doing, our safety is paramount, and then we do business as usual. We risk it, we evaluate it, we create policy and guidance, and then we move forward. Just goes to show that even in tragedy, there can be improvements and 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 positives to take out of it when you're looking at it. So that's a great um, great summation, Jared Shapiro, System Senior Director at Montefiore Health System, New York City. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Peter. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Stay safe. This is Peter Martin, President of Goslin Martin Associates. Thanks for listening to the High Reliability Podcast, and we will talk to you soon. Have a great day, everybody.